If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Through the 12th and 13th centuries, the Mongols were an unstoppable force across Europe and Asia. In his book, The Mongol Storm, Dr. Nicholas Morton discusses one power that was able to put a halt to their never-ending progress, the Mamluks. David Musgrove spoke to Nicholas and began by asking him to explain the background to Mongol expansion in the 12th century. The Mongols, their first sort of foray into the Near East began in 1218. And, but before that, the Mongols had already been expanding considerably in what for us would be the late 12th century and the early 13th century. Uh, Chinggis Khan had been gathering and building his tribal confederation within Mongolia and and nearby areas. But into sort of the 1210s, he had also begun to um, stage wars of conquest into northern China and various other empires around the periphery of of his existing territories. So the Mongol Empire is already expanding, but it's it's still at a relatively early stage. There are really big wars of conquest that will see the greater part of China and ultimately the entirety of China. They're still to come, as indeed are the conquests to the West, including the Near East and the entirety of the Eurasian steppe, all the way up to the borders of Hungary and Poland. 
Excellent. And you mentioned Chinggis Khan there. That's that would be Genghis Khan to to other people, I guess. Which, yes. which, what's the uh, what what's the correct way to pronounce it? You said Chinggis, so I presume that's that's what we should say. Yes, I think I mean people don't tend to pronounce his name sort of Chinggis or Chinggis Khan. Yes. So in the early 13th century, we got to this point where we've got already got a substantive Mongol presence uh, across a, a, a fairly large area, and then they start to come into contact with with the Near East. So let's let's qualify what's going on in the Near East. Um, what sort of um, uh, political makeup is there? Okay, so the Mongols, um, their their territories border a very large empire called the Khwarazmian Empire, which controls much of what today would be Iran and some of the um, the countries to the north of that, all the way up to sort of the borders of Baghdad. But in the Near East, the area of the Near East that I focus on specifically, which is sort of Syria, modern-day Turkey, much of Iraq, and indeed the sort of Palestine and Egypt, that sort of area. It's a very complex region. And the basic um, sort of setup is that you've got a lot of fairly small states, by and large, um, all sort of in a very complex relationship with one another. And so along the Levantine coast, so that would embrace the, the coastal regions of Syria and modern-day Lebanon and modern-day um, sort of the coastal regions of Israel as well, those are the Crusader states, which had been originally founded by the First Crusade back in 1099 through to 11, uh, 1109. But they are only a very, very small slither of territory across the entire region. Much of the area, so what would be the bulk of modern-day Syria and Egypt, that's ruled by the Ayyubid dynasty. And the Ayyubid dynasty is basically Saladin's family. The name Ayyubid comes from Ayyub, which is the name of Saladin's father. Then further north in what would be modern-day Turkey, in sort of central and eastern Turkey, you have the Anatolian Seljuk Sultanate, which is a Turkic dynasty, very um, very powerful. It's very much rising to prominence in the early 13th century, becoming very sophisticated, and its economy is really taking off. And at the western tip of what would be modern-day Turkey, you've got the Byzantine Empire, which then spreads across from there through its capital of Constantinople into Greece and the Balkans and that sort of area as well. Another major player, um, or at least it would have been, were it not for the fact that the Fourth Crusade conquered Constantinople in 1204. And so by the time the Mongols begin their expansion into the Near East in sort of 1220-ish, sort of 1218, 1220, um, the former Byzantine Empire is a major conflict zone where you've got armies of crusaders trying to gain control over the empire following the fall of Constantinople and various Byzantine dynasties trying to hold on to their territory. So it's a very complex area. I haven't mentioned groups like the Armenians and Georgians who are also there, but I think perhaps the easiest way of explaining it overall is it's a very sort of complex mosaic of different territories and states. One of the points you make in your book is is not only complicated; is it's it's very diverse, isn't it? In terms of uh, not over the political structures you talked about, but I suppose religion attitudes generally. Tell us a bit about that. Sure. Um, so yes, the region itself is incredibly diverse, and that diversity comes in all sort in, in all sorts of ways, whether through, through ethnicity or religion. And to take religion as as you mentioned there, yeah, you've got um, a very large Muslim population. That population is then divided into individual communities. So you have Sunni Muslims and Shia Muslims. And then within each of those communities, you've then got smaller groups. So, for example, one particularly well-known group from the medieval period is the Nizaris. 
um, who are, who, well, so the Western nickname for them was the Assassins, which is perhaps the most common term used for them today. But there are many other small groups as well, um, the Alawites, all sorts of um, Muslim groups across the Near East. But then you've got a very large Christian population as well. And that Christian population includes Jacobite, Syriac, Orthodox, Catholic, Ethiopian, Coptic Christians. Again, you can see there are so many different groups and societies. Um, and then there are plen- plenty of others who are neither Christian nor Muslim. You've got substantial Jewish communities, particularly in the coastal cities. There are some Zoroastrians. Uh, and so you can see it, it really is a very mixed picture. So um, we've discussed this on, on on the podcast in previous episodes. This idea of a, a sort of a very easy, simplistic narrative of uh, of sort of Crusader Christians versus Muslims in, in in this area. That's as you've just outlined. That's that's simply not 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 complicated enough, is it? Sure. Yeah. I mean, the the th- one thing that uh, the one thing that you hear about the Near East in this period is that the dominant theme is Christianity versus Islam, but it's 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 so much more complicated than that. There are all sorts of examples of trade being conducted across cultural boundaries. You've got Christians and Muslims who are friends, who are allied with one another. Um, people, you've got you've even got various pilgrim um, sites where you have Christians and Muslims worshiping side by side at places for which they share a common reverence. So it is very much more com- complicated than just simply conflict. But even if you just focus on conflict specifically, you've got plenty of examples of Christians fighting Christians, Muslims fighting Muslims, and in some cases, just to make it even more complicated, Christians and Muslims on one side fighting another group of Christians and Muslims on the other. So it, it is a tremendously complex area. So, so presumably then, um, with all the, given all these disparate polities, it, it must have been sort of uh, ripe for the picking when the, when the Mongols turned up. Did, was it like very easily conquered then, presumably? They just roll in in, in their military juggernaut? It was complicated uh, because the Mongols didn't simply invade in one go. The, the first Mongol foray into the Near East wasn't, strictly speaking, an invasion, or that would have felt that way to the people on the receiving end of it. Um, and that's that first foray. So initially, the Mongols invade the Khwarazmian Empire um, into sort of northern Persia and that sort of area. And there's a lot of um, fighting that takes place in that area. That certainly was an invasion. But in terms of sort of the court, the, the areas area that I'm looking at, which is sort of Iraq and to the west of Iraq, the first army to reach there wasn't trying to conquer territory per se. It was pursuing the Khwarazmian Sultan, trying to um, take him prisoner and take him back to Chinggis Khan. And so this first army, it's, it's specifically tasked with finding him, and they never do. But in the process, they march around the circumference of the Caspian Sea, and in, and in that process, they meet and defeat a series of major armies from the area. And it's that event that really sort of brings attention that the Mongols are now a very serious threat. And what's interesting about that is that following that initial sort of foray around the Caspian Sea, there's almost a 10-year gap before the Mongols try and invade again. They're occupied with other things. Uh, After his initial conquests in the Khwarazmian Empire, Chinggis Khan goes and fights wars in China. And so it's a long time elapses. And it must have been very easy for people at the time to think to themselves, well, perhaps the Mongols will never come back. But the thing that makes it easier for the Mongols to conquer the Middle East is that once they've conquered the rump of the Khwarazmian Empire, the son of the former ruler, someone called Jalal al-Din, 
he goes by ship from India, where he'd been taking refuge, to um, what today would be modern-day Iraq. And he begins to try and strengthen what's left of the western part of the Khwarazmian Empire, which hasn't yet fallen to the Mongols. And in doing that, he stages a series of wars of expansion into the Caucasus, into other areas. He's trying to build the biggest power base he possibly can so that when the Mongols invade, he's ready for them. And it, to some degree, he's very effective. And when, the, when a Mongol army does arrive in 1228, he manages to defeat it in battle. But the problem is that in doing this, in trying to build up a power base in which to sort of retrench his authority, in which to then face the Mongols, he makes a lot of enemies in the process. A lot of people feel threatened because they think, well, maybe we're next. Yes, he wants to fight the Mongols, but that's not much good to us if he invades our territory in the process. And so the two other really big empires in the region, that's the Anatolian Seljuks in Turkey and the Ayyubid Empire, that's the heirs of Saladin in Syria and Egypt, they form an alliance against Jalal al-Din and then defeat him in battle in 1230. Now, for them, this is a great victory because they viewed Jalal al-Din as a major threat. Only problem is, a few months later, the next big Mongol invasion army comes rolling in. And of course, there's no one there to resist that army because Jalal al-Din's just been defeated. And so the entirety of the western part of the Khwarazmian Empire and also the territories he had conquered from his neighbours, that falls to the Mongol Empire very, very quickly. And so it's, it's through that process of sort of internal conflict that enables the Mongols to invade. And after that, the Mongols begin to attack the remaining empires in the Middle East one by one to, and that then facilitates their conquest. So let's just backtrack a second then. So uh, when, when the first Mongol incursion were, the, the, the troops were going around the Caspian Sea as you, as you uh, chasing the, the, uh, the emperor, as you talked about earlier, uh, there wasn't any sense that, pe- that, that the people in that area should unify and, and, try, and uh, try and arrest this threat then. It sounds like they did precisely the opposite. It was talked about, and there were proposals made by various people that the the various um, territories of the Near East should unite against the Mongols, but it never really came about. And you you actually have some authors from this time um, complaining, why aren't we unifying? But rather because of the political, the various sort of political machinations of the key players, that, that never really happened. Okay, so so the Mongols uh, they they conquer, they take a large swathe of land. What's the sort of the, the the final extent of their empire in this area? When do they when does it reach its apogee? Sure. So. Uh, the remainder of the Khwarazmian Empire, along with some areas that it had taken very recently, including the Caucasus, that fell in sort of tw- in the 1230s. In 1243, uh, sorry, 1242 to 1243, the, the Mongols invaded what would be modern-day Turkey, and they co- conquered that after winning a major battle against the Anatolian Seljuks. But the next really big wave of invasions occurred from 1256 onwards. And this was another major army led by a Mongol commander called Hulegu, who first of all attacked various Nizari strongholds, that's the assassins as they're sort of commonly known in the West, um, in Persia and Iraq. And this is also the army that is particularly well known for its conquest of Baghdad in 1258, a particularly brutal overthrow, which with enormous loss of life. Um, Following that, The Mongols then swept north into Syria, the idea being that they would then move against the Ayyubid Empire 
and they conquered uh, Aleppo, which is the sort of the major northern city of Syria in 1260. And then a flying column went down and conquered Damascus as well. And the Ayyubid Empire, at least in Syria, uh, Ayyubid Empire, uh, fell to the Mongols at that time in 1260. But that is as far as the Mongols um, got. And I don't want to predict your next question, but I'm guessing that that's where you're going with the next one. <laughs> well, let's let's just talk about it. So, so by 1260, we've got the greatest extent. Was what, what was the name of that empire? Was it just called the Mongol? Did it have a name? Sure. I mean, in, initially, it's just the Mongol Empire. But in the 1260s, the Mongol Empire begins to break up. And this is another of the, sort of the big jigsaw pieces of, of putting together the picture of this time. Because the Mongol Empire is vast, and it extends from the Pacific seaboard all the way across to the borders of Hungary and Poland. Now, the Mongols are good at making the communications across their empire work because they've got something called the fast horse system, and whereby if you want to get a message quickly from, say, the capital in Karakorum to one of the provinces, you'll give the message to a messenger. The messenger will then gallop and gallop for 20, 30 miles to a way station where the message will be given to the next rider who will then do the same thing. And you have way stations at regular intervals all the way to the borders. So you can communicate relatively quickly, but it's still a huge distance. And so what the Mongol, uh, Mongols do is they begin that they... they the major sort of ruling dynasties are given areas of the Mongol Empire as Ulu, which is sort of areas under their jurisdiction. And then they begin to fight amongst themselves about where the boundaries of those jurisdictions should be. And the Near East is a particular point of contention because it's claimed by the Jokid dynasty. That's the dynasty named after Chinggis Khan's son, Jokhi. He He claims that for himself, but it's also claimed by another Mongol ruler called Hulugu. And the two initially have a fair amount of rivalry with each other, but then Hulugu decisively takes control over the Near East from about 1260 onwards, which the Jokhid dynasty finds to be absolutely unacceptable. And this is the beginning of a very, very long war between the Jokids in Western Eurasia, covering much to the north of the Caucasus, and then Hulugu and his um, heirs in Persia, Near East, that sort of area. And the two, those, those two sort of divisions of the Mongol Empire are called the Golden Horde in the north and the Ilkhanate in the Near East. And so that, that's the name that begins to get associated with that part of the Mongol Empire, although, of course, originally it was just the Mongol Empire. Thanks. That's really helpful. That's a that's a really good summation of where it is. Because as you say, it's complicated. Okay, so back back to the Near East to the twelve sixties. Somebody manages to to find a way to to stop the the Mongol advance. Right. What what happens? So the Mongols have suffered defeats in the past. That has happened. There's people like Jalal al Din were able to inflict individual defeats on the Mongols. There were various other powers that managed it too. But those defeats were nearly always one-offs, and the Mongols made very sure that if they suffered a defeat, that that was not something that was left to stand for very long. And so normally, the person who had been victorious against them was submerged by a massive wave of attacks immediately afterwards. And this is all important background to what happens in 1260, because the Mongol um, field army goes into northern Syria and conquers Aleppo, and it does so at full strength. And we're looking at an army here of probably around 100,000 troops. Now, for context, the largest and most powerful territory in the entirety of the Near East at this time was probably the, the Ayyubids, 
who at their greatest extent could probably manage an army of about 20,000. Can I just can I just stop you for a second? So 100,000, is that how how realistic, how robust is that that number, do you think? I'm actually picking a conservative figure. Um, there are some people who got to 150,000. Wow. But we're talking, the, the army's preparations were so great that they were looking, when they were planning their advance, they were making sure that all herds and flocks were cleared for hundreds of miles around just to give space to this enormous Mongol force moving in, because it's not just troops. The Mongols um, travel in, in their armies with ma- their massive wagon cities. So it's one of the most astonishing sights, uh, not that we can see it, but we can sort of imagine it, of the Mongol Empire. That they, they, they live in huge wagon cities. And so a Mongol leader may have 50 or 60 wagons containing all the various items and tents that that family needs. And so the the Mongol encampments could stretch for several days' march, just endless wagons and tents, all surrounded then by flocks and herds, and then, of course, horses and troops and all the other paraphernalia of the Mongol armies, and then their auxiliaries. Because it's not just Mongol soldiers, it's all the other soldiers from conquered regions who are now part of this Mongol force. And you've got people describing the, 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 the logistics of this, saying that, you know, bags of foodstuffs for the army look like small hills and things like that. So we're talking about a very, very substantial um, force, far greater. I mean, even if every power in the Near East had pooled their forces, they couldn't have got close to the numbers the Mongols could put in the field. So they do sound very large in terms of total numbers, but actually they need to be taken seriously. And of course, this is why many powers in the Near East don't resist the Mongols. Many of them actually submit without a fight because they know they're not going to win. And the Mongols facilitate this because they say to, they they make it very clear that if you submit to the Mongols when the Mongols are still far away, you'll get preferential treatment. You'll be treated very well. Essentially, you'll be able to carry on much as you ever have with a small tribute. If you submit to the Mongols when they are on your doorstep, you'll still be treated fairly well, but the tribute will be higher, the conditions will be greater, and you'll probably have to put up with a Mongol garrison. If If you have to be taken by force or forced to submit, then life's going to be very, very hard for you. And so that kind of behaviour, that sort of graded approach to the various territories around their margins, creates a very strong incentive for people to submit anyway, without even being threatened. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. One historian points out the Mongol battlefront, so from, from the, the left wing all the way to the right wing of the Mongol army, is 26 kilometres wide. So it's an enormous force that's advancing into Syria. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. 
Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Right, I've taken us off track there, so we need to go, go back to where we were. So you, the, no, our 100,000 sure. strong army. So yeah, they, they attack Aleppo, and at this point they send um, emissaries down to Egypt. Now, until recently, Egypt had been ruled by the Ayyubid dynasty. But then in 1250, the Ayyubid dynasty is overthrown, and it's overthrown by a group of warriors in its army. And the background to this is that due to the Mongol conquests, particularly in Western Eurasia, sort of around the borders of the, of the Black Sea, um, the Mongol conquest there created enormous numbers of enslaved people who were then sold across the, the slave markets of the Black Sea, the Near East, the Mediterranean, and elsewhere. And the Ayyubids buy slaves in very large numbers to then train them to become Mamluks, and the Mamluks are basically enslaved people who are then transformed into elite warriors. But they do it in such quantities that these Mamluks, or the Mamluk, various Mamluk regiments, realise that they actually have more than enough power to overthrow the Ayyubids themselves. And so they do this in 1250, and these are the origins of the Mamluk Empire, which ultimately will last until it's overthrown by the Ottomans in 1517. So it's, got, it's a big empire with a long history. But what's interesting about the Mamluks is, uh, going back to 1260, when the Mongols send emissaries down to the Mamluks, the Mongols issue their standard demand, which is basically, submit to the Mongol Empire, or we will destroy you. That's the standard uh, Mongol approach. And the Mamluks are very defiant. They, their response is to kill one of the emissaries and to shave the beards from the others, which is obviously an enormous insult. So they, there can be nothing but war after that point. But... After this, the Mamluks don't just wait for the Mongols to advance against Egypt. They actually put together their own forces. And we're only talking about 12,000 troops and then march on Syria. And this, you know, this naturally leads you to think, well, Mongols, 100,000, Mamluks, 12,000. What chance do they have? And as the Mamluks advance out of Egypt, they make an approach to the Kingdom of Jerusalem, which is one of the Crusader states. And they basically, do you, do you want to join us? Do you, want, do you want to help us fight the Mongols? And the Crusader states are in an awkward position because the Mongols are on their borders, but the Mamluks are also, are also a neighbour as well. And so they kind of seem to, to try to play both sides. In the north, the northernmost Crusader state called the Principality of Antioch, that's already submitted to the Mongols. But the Kingdom of Jerusalem, it tries to play both sides. So it tries to keep diplomatic channels open to the Mongols, trying to keep the Mongols talking without necessarily submitting to them. But to the Mamluks, they say, we will supply you with horses and provisions, 
So we're kind of on your side, but we're not going to fight alongside you. They're trying to sort of play both sides, trying to sort of plot a course through the unfolding events of this era. But the point is, the Mamluks advance on the Mongols alone. But the Mamluks get... Something very important happens, which is that the great Khan in Mongolia dies. And so Hulugu, with 90% of his forces then moves eastwards to the Caucasus so that he can have his say in the events of the succession and the way that will fall out. And he only leaves a garrison of maybe 12,000, 20,000 troops in, well, they're stationed in the Bukhar Valley, which is near Damascus. And so when the Mamluks march out, actually they don't meet the, the Mongols at full strength. They meet a Mongol garrison instead. And as a result, at a battle called Ain Jalut, the Mamluks meet and then defeat this Mongol army. And this is, Angelou is both simultaneously very, very important, but also not important at the same time. What makes it important is the fact that this is a defeat of the Mongol army. Not only is it a defeat, but the Mamluks also roll back the Mongols' conquest across Syria all the way up to the river Euphrates. That includes Damascus and Aleppo. And they do so within a few months. Now, the Mongols do not lose territory. That's not something that happens. But they do. In doing so, the Mamluks not only win territory and cities, etc., but of course, it's an enormous propaganda coup as well, because they can now entirely reasonably present themselves as the victors over the Mongols, you know, one of the very few who's ever done that, and they've taken territory from them as well. Now, what makes Ayanjalut it's not less important exactly, but the sort of the caveat to all of this is that the bulk of the Mongol army remains unfought. And so the big question is, when will the Mongols return? And we hear there are various statements in the surviving sources where the Mongols swear that they will have their revenge and have their revenge very quickly. And so the Mamluks have every reason to believe that a large Mongol army will be headed their way in only a few months. But it doesn't. Because another event which is equally important is, as I mentioned before, this outbreak of war between the various Mongol dynasties. That's the Ilkhanate, as it will become in the Near East, and the Golden Horde um, in Western Eurasia. And these two Mongol empires, they start to fight amongst themselves. So suddenly, where the Mongols might have wished to have their revenge on the Mamluks very quickly, that's not really possible. And as it becomes clear that the Mongols aren't going to retaliate immediately, a spate of rebellions begins to break out across a great, great deal of Mongol territory, because the Mongol armies may be huge, but in comparison to the underlying population and the general size of the empire they've conquered, they're still a very small ruling minority. So there's plenty of scope for rebels to strike back against them. And all of this ties the Mongols up and prevents them from responding. And so actually a 20-year gap elapses between Ain Jalut, where the Mamluks initially defeat the Mongols, and the Mongols' next really big offensive. They stage various raiding campaigns. There are a few sort of moderate incursions, but there's nothing pushed home in earnest until 20 years later. And for your, for your listeners who are interested in the Crusader states and the Crusades, that 20-year gap's not just important for the Mamluks and the Mongols, it's also important for the Crusader states. Because the Mamluks, as part of their preparations for a new Mongol offensive, which, of course, as far as they're concerned, they have no idea when it's coming. It could come tomorrow, it could come in 10 years, they don't know. They begin to bulk up their, their frontier defences, but they also begin to use their army to break down the Crusader states 
because they want to sort of get rid of all other enemies so that they can focus on the Mongols. And so it's during the 1260s, the Kingdom of Jerusalem loses nearly all its inland fortresses. 1268, the Principality of Antioch falls to the Mamluk army. And so by the time the Mongols invade in 1280, it's only a handful of cities and fortresses along the coastline that are still in Frankish or Western European hands. So this that period, that 20-year gap, that will affect the fate of many empires across the um, across the Near East. That's interesting. So by so by the 1280s, have we finally got to a point where there's a sort of a, a polity of a sort of uh, of unified substantial size in the Near East that can face up to the Mongols? Has the Mamluks sort of developed that that sort of unified status? The Mamluks are to be very effective administrators. They're also very keen to bolster trade. And of course, the underlying principle beneath all of this is to boost their revenues so that they can then afford munitions, building work, more troops, because they know the Mongols are coming. And so in 1280, the Mongols launch a new offensive. It's thought their army may have numbered somewhere between sixty to 80,000. And they advance into the Mamluk Empire. They advance initially on... Aleppo, which the Mamluks don't try and hold. And then they move south towards Damascus, which is the other really big Syrian capital of the Mamluk Empire. Now, the Mamluks, they've been preparing for this for a long time. And they've got an army, perhaps 30,000 strong. So even though it's a great, it's, it's a great deal bigger than other uh, former empires, uh, it's still a lot smaller than the Mongol army. And one historian points out the Mongol battlefront, so from from the the left wing all the way to the right wing of the Mongol army, is 26 kilometres wide. So it's an enormous force that's advancing into Syria. And the Mamluks meet them uh, just outside the town of Homs, to the north of Damascus. And there's a tremendous amount of fighting, a lot of cut and thrust, but it seems ultimately ultimately that a a Mamluk charge against the central formation of the Mongol army, caused the Mongol leader to withdraw temporarily, which was then taken as a signal for the, for the army as a whole to withdraw, and that was then followed by a rout, and the Mamluks then pursued them back to their Euphrates border. So that 20-year period is crucial for so many reasons, but it also gives the Mamluks time to put together a force which, despite being very heavily outnumbered, is still sufficient to drive the Mongols back and win the Battle of Homs in 1281, um, which is perhaps far more important in the long term than Einjelut. And and so had the Mamluks not only spent that that um, last couple of decades strengthening their position, but had they been sort of studying the military strategies of the Mongols to work out how they could defeat them? To an extent, yes. I mean, the Mamluks have a number of strengths um, militarily. As I mentioned, a lot of the Mamluks originally were enslaved people who were brought from the Black Black Sea region down to Egypt and then trained as warriors. But many of the people in the Black Sea region are themselves from steppe background, steppe nomadic background. And a lot of the the Mamluks were actually Kipchak Turks who were well-versed in the nomadic way of war. So they live and fight, at least traditionally, in a manner very similar to the Mongols. So they're mounted archers, that's the way the bulk of the Mongol army fights. And they're, used, they're familiar to the sort of the step tactics of hit and run attacks, trying to engulf your opponent. They fight in much the same way as the Mongols. But the Mamluks also have the advantage that the, their empire is tremendously rich. So they can afford the best weapons, armor, horses, the best money can buy. 
So that gives them the strength to meet the Mongols, at least on an equal playing field. But the Mongols themselves were also tremendously wealthy. And of course, they've um, got a track record of victory, which means their warriors have either bought or picked up the best weapons, and they're tremendously experienced too. So, But at least this gives the Mamluks the chance to meet them on a reasonably even playing field. And of course, the Mamluks have the great advantage, that, in a sense, that they know, they know that they're the last line of defence. If their army goes, that's it, that's the end. Not, there's not going to be a second, uh, a second go at this. And that too may have given them an extra cutting edge. Mm. Homs isn't the end of the story, I guess, because you, you, you track this for, for another few decades after that. What is the final outcome? Do, do, the, do the Mamluks end up pushing the Mongols out? Sort of. Um, so again, there's, there's another hiatus, again, almost of 20 years, and it's in 1299 that the Mongols then attack, stage a next, another invasion. And on this occasion, they do defeat the Mamluks, and they take Damascus as well as Aleppo. So this is a Mongol victory. But what's interesting is the Mongols then withdraw. And this this has raised all sorts of questions for scholars saying, well, they've defeated the main field. Why aren't they pushing on into Egypt? Isn't that an obvious thing to do? Um, Various reasons have been provided for that. Some some are more persuasive than others. One comment that an observer from the Knights Templar made about this is that the, the more the Mongols pushed south, so in northern Syria, there's a fair amount of pasture land suitable for their flocks and herds and horses. Further south, that pasture land gets more and more sparse. And so this Templar observer said, well, there's not enough grazing for their horses, so there's a limit to how far they can push south. That's one possible reason. The other is that in order to get to Damascus to fight the Mamluks, the Mongols had advanced about four or 500, year, four or 500 miles beyond their own borders. And Damascus is quite is quite hard to sort of support when you've got to bring in supplies, reinforcements, communications, all the way from the next nearest friendly Mongol territory, which is so far away. And there's a lot of intervening strongholds that hadn't been taken. So I suspect that this was, the Mongols probably saw this as being a sort of preliminary attack to weaken the Mamluk Empire, perhaps with a more serious invasion army to follow. But in fact, several years were to pass before they could do it again. And that never actually happened. When the Battle of Homs was won, did the did the message go out across uh, across the, the sort of the rest of Europe that the Mongols had finally been defeated, and did everyone sort of think, "Well, we need to we need to back these Mamluks to to, to keep that the pressure up on them"? Reactions are mixed. Um, for the Mamluks, of course, this is tremendous news because their empire is safeguarded and they can present themselves as the defenders of the entire region and, by extension, the defenders of Islam as well, because so much of the Muslim world had already been conquered by the Mongols. So for them, it's a tremendous victory, and for their allies as well. And the other people who are very pleased are the the Mongols of the Golden Horde, who are the great rivals of the Mongols in the Near East, and they're allied to the Mamluks, so they're very pleased about this as well. In Western Europe, reactions are rather different, because of course, yes, they're concerned about the danger of a Mongol invasion through sort of what's over Eastern Europe, um, there's been a long-standing danger of that, but they also recognise that they're dealing with different Mongol empires now, and the Mongol Empire in the Near East is an opponent of the Mamluks, and the Mamluks are the empire that's been responsible for um, the decline and ultimately in 1291 the destruction of the Crusader states. So actually, in, whilst initially the uh, West, whilst initially in Western Christendom, people saw the Mongols in the Near East as being an opponent. 
that shifts as the Mamluks and the danger they pose to the Crusader states becomes clear. And there's the beginnings of talks about cooperative ventures with the Mongols against the Mamluks, because the Mamluks are seen as the proximate threat to the Crusader states, though in practice, the communications and the logistics involved in making Mongol and Western European armies work together prove to be insurmountable, so it never actually happens. Okay. Um, right, we, we'd better wrap up. So last question, uh, just uh, how does how does your story end? How does your century of, uh, of uh, history um, conclude? And what's the legacy um, of, of the Mongols' presence in the Near East, would you say? Sure. I mean, my, my, my book concludes really by reflecting on on the ongoing relationship really between nomadic peoples and agricultural peoples, because in many ways the Mongol invasions into the Near East are another step in that historic relationship that goes all the way back for thousands of years. And I think that one of the points that came out so clearly for me is just how effective nomadic societies are in this era. Now, we live in a world today with roads and railways and cities where really the nomadic way of life has has just to, to a greater degree been lost or got into steep decline. But back in the medieval period, nomadic societies are not merely very effective, but often they are more effective than agricultural societies. Often agricultural societies, whether that's Muslim, Eastern Christian or Western Christian societies, they find it very, very difficult either to defeat nomadic armies in the battlefield or to prevent their in, their raiders infiltrating between their frontier fortresses and creating all sorts of problems for them in their heartland. So it's very hard to keep a nomadic invasion out. And it's, that, it's reflecting on that, on the various strengths and weaknesses of the various different societies involved in the Near East. That's, that's really where I, where I conclude the book. But you mentioned also, what's the long-term impact here? And there's all sorts of different answers to that question, because the Mongols entirely rewire the greater part of Eurasia. So we can answer this question in all sorts of different ways. In the Near East, the Mongols, through their invasion into the Near East, they really set the scene for the rise of the next two empires, because it's ultimately the, the various people put to flight and later enslaved by the Mongols, who are then purchased by the Ayyubids, who then form the Mamluk Empire. So in some ways, the Mongols inadvertently played a part in the rise of the very empire that would defeat them. And then in Anatolia, that's modern-day um, Turkey, there's a rise of nomadic um, groups uh, called Turkmen in Anatolia, and these Turkmen grow in number, particularly as people try to get out of the Mongols' way. And one of the leading dynasties among those various Turkmen groups is called the Ottomans. And so again, the Mongols inadvertently play a role in what will become the rise of the really big empires that will dominate the Middle East in the next few centuries. But there's a bigger picture than that as well. Because the Mongol empire is so vast and because the Mongols move artisans and traders all the way across their empire from one side to the other, suddenly ideas and concepts that before really hadn't ever got, hadn't reached various different regions, suddenly they're being transported and carried uh, into the Near East or out of the Near East in a way they never had previously. And so, for example, gunpowder arrives in the Near East during this time. Uh, now, it's possible gunpowder may have been, there may have been some some sort of engagement with gunpowder previously, but it takes off 
in this era. And it's thought that, that may have been connected in some way to the technology being brought perhaps by traders um, from China, which had long experience of gunpowder weapons previously. But there's other things too. For example, paper money is tried briefly. It's a colossal failure um, in the Near East by the Mongols, which again is something they've, they've learnt from elsewhere. And in the, in the same way, various technologies that were developed in the Near East are exported to other areas. Um, the counterweight trebuchet, for example, a big siege catapult, uh, that, was, that was developed almost simultaneously by the Crusaders and the Ayyubids in their various wars against each other. But that technology then got transferred to the Mongols' wars in China. Now, I've given quite a lot of... I've given two of the examples I've given there are military, which are often easiest to follow because military technology gets a lot of attention in this period. But there are all sorts of other examples, too, of recipes and dances and textiles and fashions and art. All these ideas are changing hands furiously. And so it's, a, it's an incredibly interesting and vibrant time, um, which just adds an extra complexity to all the wars and the diplomacy and the displaced people. It's, it's such a, a complex and rich and brutal, and wonderful, and awful environment, all mixed in at the same time. That was Dr Nicholas Morton. His book, The Mongol Storm, Making and Breaking Empires in the Near East, is out now, published by Basic Books. And if you're interested in finding out more about the Mongols' great rivals, the Mamluks, be sure to check out In Our Times' episode on these medieval rulers of Egypt and Syria. You can find that now on BBC Sounds. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. <laughs>